All right. Y'all ready to do the thing? No? Maybe? Who knows? Laverne's ready to do it. All right, let me pray for us, and then uh, we're going to dive into uh, talking about Greece tonight. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that we have the chance to be able to talk about um, this material tonight. God, I know that this is that um, goofy intersection of biblical... Um, outworking and history. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us uh, what we need to be able to understand uh, history rightly so that we might understand the context uh, for Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us do that tonight. And as is my custom, I would just ask that you would pray for me, that uh, what I say would be accurate, that it would be helpful, that it would be uh, beneficial, and, and, uh, and that I would have God's Spirit helping me do that tonight. So if you would take a moment and pray for me. Father, I'm excited about being able to talk about these things tonight. Um, God, I pray that you would help me restrain uh, myself in talking about things that are just unnecessary and that I would stick to what it is that uh, you um, need me to say. God, I pray that you would help me do that through your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would send your Spirit to us to help us comprehend um, historical data. And uh, Father, that would point uh, our way to you all the more. And so Father, we give you this time and uh, we pray that it'll be honoring to you. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So where we are tonight, I'm just going to dive straight into it. We're in week 14 out of 15. And so we are basically at the very end of our series. However, we are essentially done with the Bible part of it. Right? We are basically done with the Old Testament, and the next voice we're going to hear is a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, your boy Johnny B. So that's the next dude that we're going to hear, and that's the very end of next week. So this is where we were last week. We talked about the Babylonian captivity, um, how Persia came uh, onto the world stage, and then we talked about the return from captivity. And the two big things that I really wanted us to take away from there is that God's faithfulness has been clearly demonstrated through um, this episode in Israel's history, and that what we left off on was that God was going to use the Persians to entice the Greeks. And we're talking all about the Greeks tonight. Yeah? So... If you want more detail, go check out last night. Got all sorts of, or last week, we got all sorts of stuff on that. Where we are heading tonight is this. We are going to talk about Greek ascent. We're going to talk about uh, the Greeks. We're going to talk about how Persia is on the slide. And then we're going to talk about your boy, Alexander the Great. Um, Alexander the Great is a, a huge seminal figure, not just in world history, but there are some really practical uh, real-world implications that have to do with biblical history that are attached to Alexander the Great. We're going to talk about the uh, Diadochi, the Diadokoi, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, we're going to talk about the Diadochi states, and then we're going to talk about Rome for a little bit. So this is where a lot of this stuff is not in your Bible. And I would say actually all of it is not in your Bible. This is history. And this is the part where we really need to be able to engage what is happening on the ground and then knowing we're going to end up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of telling us what's happening uh, for the next scene historically in the Bible. But we got to get there first. Yeah? All right. So let's just start off with this bit right here. Let's talk about how Persia was on the decline, and we're going to talk about Greek ascent. 
So the last figure that we met um, in the last session was this cat named Darius or Darius. And Darius was the last Persian emperor that we had talked about. Um, so we talked about Cyrus the Great, who was the Persian uh, emperor who had unified the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he took over what was the Babylonian Empire. Um, and then he was the guy who fought with uh, Tyre for about 13 years. Then we talked about Darius the Great. He was the next cat. The next big figure that we're going to talk about tonight is going to be another dude named Darius, Darius III. There's about 200 years in between these dudes. Don't get it twisted. Don't worry about it. This is that period, in, in, uh, especially in ancient history, where cats start repeating names. So you got Cyrus, you got Darius, you got Xerxes, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes II, Artaxerxes III, Darius III. I mean, like, you start getting these cats. It's just like... European history and English history when you got Richards and Johns out the wazoo, right? This is that point in human history where we start doing that a lot. So let me just kind of clear the table. When I say Darius for tonight, you need to be thinking of Darius the third, right? So Cyrus the Great establishes the Persian Empire. He establishes this huge swath of land, takes over the Babylonians. Um, and then Darius, his son, is the one who's going to pick everything up. Xerxes is the guy that we started talking about. Uh, he's the dude that we see at the end, or excuse me, at the very beginning of Esther. And then his son is Artaxerxes I. And so let's pick it up with there. Artaxerxes I, who is like the third emperor of the Persian Empire, he is typically the guy that historians say, this is when the Persian Empire started falling apart. Three kings in, right? So let me just take a pause and say, when we look at Israel's history and we start talking about Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then everything falls apart, it's actually not too far off of most world history. In fact, whenever we talk about the Greeks, they don't even get that far, right? So it's almost immediately after there is a strong leader, things start falling apart. So Artaxerxes I, he's the starting point of this because what is happening is he is going to gradually be losing power in the West. Now, what I mean by the West, I'll highlight it here in just a bit on a map. Um, what I mean by the West is you need to be thinking about modern day Turkey. That's the part of the Turkish peninsula, if y'all are looking at the map. So where Turkey is, and then there's Greece over here. There's a lot of Greek colonies that are on the Greek homeland and on the other side of the Aegean in Turkey. So you start thinking of like modern places that we see in the New Testament, like Ephesus, Hariopolis, those types of places. Those are Greek areas. Artaxerxes is losing control of that immediately. Like that's it's a constant thorn in his side. So he is losing power all the way over in the West. And it just, it just keeps going from bad to worse. It's one of those things that in human history, it is one thing to win an empire, to like build one. It is an entirely separate issue to rule one. And unless you got some incredibly skilled person, you're not going to be able to do both of those in, in quick succession. It's just like, it's just the lottery of, you know, uh, empires being handed down from one man to his son. Is this dude going to be a rockhead? Who knows? You give it a shot and he's in charge of this empire and it starts crumbling, right? So Artaxerxes, everything starts going downhill. His successor, guess what? Artaxerxes II. He is constantly going to be fighting these Greek city-states, right? Let me just introduce a term. Whenever we talk about Greek city-states and we talk about Greece, do not think of Greece as a nation. Think of Greece as a group of people who speak the same language and have similar values, but all hate each other. 
They all hate each other, right? The Corinthian League is like one of the first Pan-Hellenic group that actually comes together. But when we talk about Sparta, Corinth, Athens, Thessalonica later will be one of these places, consider them like their own nation. And that's like a city with the area around it that they can project power to. So that's what I mean by city-states. Artaxerxes is constantly fighting these guys. And guess what? He ain't doing so hot. He actually tries to go into the Greece homeland and gets beaten down. And so what ends up happening is he creates the king's peace. And this is 386 BC. So this is about 400 years before Jesus, right? So this kind of situates where we are in the biblical timeline. Um, he creates the king's peace. And so basically he cuts a deal with all these Greek city-states and says, hey, if you're over there in Greece, y'all can have all that land. I'm not worried about that, but anything that's in Asia, Asia Minor or Turkey, what we call it today in Turkey, if it's one of those places, I maintain control over that. And that was a deal that worked for a while, but the problem is as soon as he cut that, Egypt then peels off from Persia. And if you know anything about history, this is a huge deal because in the ancient world, uh, Egypt is like the breadbasket of the known world at that point. So if you're needing to supply armies, if you're needing to supply not, them, not armies just with food, but with anything else, you typically get it from Egypt because they just have tons of stuff. Well, now your big cash cow in all of Persia is now independent. All right, so you can see how Artaxerxes the first, everything starts going downhill. Artaxerxes the second is trying to maintain, and it just goes from bad to worse. Yeah? All right, so Artaxerxes II is then uh, succeeded by a guy uh, a little bit later um, named Darius III, I'm sorry, uh, to Artaxerxes III. And what this cat's going to do is he's going to recapture a bunch of lost land. He's going to go back there and he's going to get Egypt back. And before he dies, they gain their independence again. Okay, like so you're seeing like he is struggling just to maintain the borders of Persia. And what happens from there is he is in such a last ditch effort. He cuts a deal with Athens of all people because they actually have a navy and they actually f sail around the Aegean and all over the Mediterranean. He cuts a deal with them so that he can get some naval forces to hold down what is modern day Turkey. And that's a great deal except it's immediately nullified because there's this cat named Philip of Macedon who then conquers Athens and then any deal that they had made with Persia, he just tears it up and says, nope, we're not doing that. So this guy goes and gets Egypt back. They fall back away, cuts a deal with Athens. That deal goes up in smoke. The whole thing is starting to crumble around his feet, right? And so this is all going on within, you know, 20, 30 years of 386 after the King's Peace and it's already falling apart. And then in the same year, in 336, there's this cat named Darius, Darius III. He is going to come to power. The exact same year, there's this cat named Alexander the Great, who's going to come to power as well. Philip II of Macedon is the, uh, basically the guy who was in charge of this Pan-Hellenic League. The Corinthian League is sometimes what it's called. Um, and basically, that is one on the edge of Alexander's sword. His first task within Greece was basically to go from Macedon up north and drive all the way south to get to Sparta. And if you conquer all that, then I'll make you a general. And that's exactly what Alexander does. And so they're both rising to power. And from this point on, this is when the real fighting begins. So all this stuff with Artaxerxes, the first, the second, and the third, that was nothing compared to what's about to happen between Darius and Alexander. Yeah?
Y'all tracking with that? We just blew through about 150 years worth of decline, 150, 200 years worth of decline for Persia. Yeah? All right. Let me throw this up there for you. Do y'all recognize this mosaic? You recognize anything about this? There's really only two cats that you really need to be focusing on. It's this cat right here, and then this dude right here, right? Um, let me blow that up for you. Do y'all recognize either one of those cats? That dude on the left is Alexander. Notice the big old honking schnoz he's got, right? That, and I'm dead serious. Whenever you look in history and you start looking at coins that were minted and they had the Basileus, the king, you had Alexander the Great, he's always got like a huge nose, right? So that's how you know that's Alexander. And this cat on the right, that's Darius III. What this is, this is the, uh, the Battle of Issus mosaic. Um, this is one of the best pictures we have of what Alexander actually looked like, right? And so if you kind of go back to what this battle scene looks like, you can actually see a whole bunch of damage uh, to the mosaic. Um, but you can see how this is being depicted of that Alexander is right there in the middle of this fight because he was, right? When Alexander the Great comes on the scene, you'll see this a little bit later on, he only rules for about 13 years, but those are 13 years of nothing but major battles and he loses not a single one. Not only does he not lose a single one, he leads the battles. There's this group of cavalry, you see him on a horse. This horse is white, or excuse me, brown. Uh, most likely that horse is supposed to be Bocephalus, uh, his famous white horse. Um, Alexander would ride out with the companion cavalry in the middle of the fight, okay? So I'm trying to depict how big a deal this dude is. So this is the Battle of Issus mosaic. He's right there in the middle of the fight. So you can see all these cats that are in there, this damaged part are other uh, Greek soldiers who are fighting along with him. And he's right there in the thick of it because that's how he gets down, okay? Have I painted the picture well for who Alexander the Great and his big schnoz is? Yeah? All right, I'm gonna throw up a map here. So this is where modern day Turkey is, this Asia Minor portion. And this is all up here at the top left. That is like your Macedonia area. And so Philip of Macedon and then later Alexander comes down south, comes all the way to Athens and then Sparta sits right down here. Um, he conquers that whole area. And then the very next thing he does is he crosses the Hellespont and goes over to Asia now. And once he's in Asia, he has a little skirmish there in Granicus. That's the first time that the Greeks and the Persians really start fighting, and Alexander smokes the Persians. He's outnumbered like four to one and smokes them, okay? I want you to just pay attention the way the battle lines go from there. He walks all the way through Asia Minor. Issus is this battle right there. We'll talk about that in just a moment. That's the picture, the mosaic that we had just seen. I'll just give you a spoiler. He whips Darius badly. In fact, he whips him so bad, he actually captures all of Darius's family, like his wife, his kids, and his mom, right? That's how badly he wins. And what Darius does from there is he goes from Issus all the way back over here to Babylon, and he just retreats. And instead of Alexander following him and going and carrying the fight, he turns south. Now, why would that be important that Alexander would turn south for our purposes tonight? Where is he going to run into whenever he turns south? He's going to go to Egypt eventually, but what does he do before he gets there? He rolls right through Jerusalem. That's where our story connects with history here.
right? So hold this in your head. He's going to turn south. He's going to go into Egypt. He's going to come back. This is right there at uh, Jerusalem. Is right here at this arrowhead. And then he eventually comes over here to Arabella or the Battle of uh, uh, Galgamela, same place. He's going to have a big fight there. And then he is going to make it all the way to India. That's what Alexander does. This is literally, this is India. The Indus River Valley is the border between what is like modern day Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, that area. He conquers every bit of this. Doesn't lose a single fight. This is what Alexander does, okay? You have been oriented to the map well? Cool with that? If not, go check it out later. All right. What about Alexander the Great? All right, so his first task was to capture Asia Minor. He does that by crossing the Hellespont, the Granicus River, takes it over. No problem. The next battle is the Battle of Issus, and he smokes Darius there. And this is where that first confrontation he has with him, the mosaic. I mean, you can even see in the mosaic that Darius is supposed to, like, look afraid. That's because he was losing. And Alexander actually captures Darius's family. And I think he ends up marrying one of his daughters. Um, this will be one of the uh, key things that you'll see. The Babylonians did it. The Persians did it. And Alexander is going to perfect it. He is going to have his commanders and himself are going to start marrying into royalty wherever they go and conquer, right? So he actually starts this with Darius's family when he's got them captured after he just whipped their dad, right? It's a big deal. So he clears the way from there, but instead of going east and following Darius, he goes south. And this is a big deal because he is going to conquer as far as Egypt, Okay, the reason why that's important, and I have that in parentheses or quotation marks rather, is because he's not really fighting anywhere. The only place, let me just go back to it, the only place that he's ever actually going to have a fight is going to be in Tyre, which is right here, and then Gaza. Those are the only two places he actually has a fight. Everywhere else, Alexander the Great walks into the city. They greet him as a liberator because the Persian Empire had been falling apart for a while. They, the way that the Persians were collecting taxes were they weren't going to get all the money they needed for their wars from their people. They were going to get all the money from taxes from these conquered areas like Judea, like Egypt, which is why they kept rebelling, right? Tracking with that? And so he is going to have this fight in Tyre. Uh, I'll just highlight this, Tyre. Um, this is the place that uh, Nebuchadnezzar took 13 years to try to capture and failed to do it, Alexander the Great takes it in seven months. Tyre is on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean, and so there's old tires like the city, and then there's like an island that's literally about a mile out. And Alexander wanted them to surrender because everyone else had surrendered, and they wouldn't do it. And so he sent like a little skirmishing force in there, and they got, they got beaten back fairly badly. And so Alexander literally built a mole. Does anybody know what a mole is? What's a mole? He built a land bridge in the Mediterranean Sea from the, from the coast of Old Tyre out to this island, which is about a mile away, bucket by bucket. He did it in seven months. He built two siege towers, sent them up, and they conquered the city the first time they went up. He did not play around. He killed like 90% of the people who were still there, right? So when I told y'all last week that the meat grinder is just going to keep going on, this is what I'm talking about. If you want to welcome Alexander the Great, he'll gladly incorporate you into the, into the empire, and he will gladly not tax you very harshly. He might ask you to name every son born in that city for the next year Alexander, which happens 
Incidentally, that's actually a pretty common name for Jews today. You know why? Because Alexander the Great demanded that of Jerusalem, and they did it. Okay? So, all that being said, he conquers Tyre, he goes to Gaza, in between he goes into Jerusalem, he's, meet, uh, he's greeted by this cat named Simon the Just, who was the high priest of Jerusalem, and basically said, hey, we welcome you, we're glad you're here. And then he gets his way all the way to Egypt. Once he gets done with Egypt, he comes back through Jerusalem, and then he moves on from there, right? We're tracking with that so far? So instead of going east, he just goes south, he lands in Jerusalem, goes to Egypt, comes back to Jerusalem, and then our story picks up from there, okay? A couple years later, oh, there he is. He conquered, and he was seen as a liberator. Then the next big confrontation he has with Darius III is at this battle called Battle of Galgamela, or Arabella, it's the same place, in 331, and he absolutely destroys the Persians. Um, Alexander was excellent with cavalry, and his, if you take conservative numbers, his army was maybe 50,000 people, and the Persians at this point were maybe 140,000, if not 200,000. And he smokes them a third of their size, if not a quarter of their size, and he wins. This dude does not play. And as soon as he does that, the lane is wide open for him to go straight to Babylon, to Susa, Persepolis, which is like the, the ancient capital of Persia. Persepolis, Persia, you see how those are connected? Um, the Persian city. Persepolis, um, and then you got Ecbatana. So these old ancient cities where Esther was at, at Ecbatana and Susa, Alexander walks into them without a fight. Are you seeing how big a deal this is? He did this in about four years, right? This is no small feat, and he is just rolling through. So he's now conquered this huge empire because once he destroys Darius out in the field and then he walks into Babylon, walks into Susa, Persepolis, and Ecbatana, he is now in charge. They start minting coins with his big schnoz on it, right? They start saying that he is the Basileus, the king, right? So he earns that title. So now he owns the Persian areas, but the problem is there's all these rebellions in these conquered areas. So he's got to constantly be fighting these little battles over and over to put down these riots, these rebellions. And as he keeps chasing the riot, he ends up getting closer and closer to India. Okay. So long story short, he makes it all the way to India. His boys rebel because they said, hey, you told us we were going to be gone for four years. That was, you know, a dozen years ago. Why are we not back home? And so they start saying, we're going to mutiny, or you can take us home. And so he turns back, and uh, they start going from there. So he returns from India, and his whole goal is to consolidate power all along the way. And by the way, he's never lost a single battle. Okay, That's how big a deal Alexander the Great is. So while he is doing this, what do you think Alex is doing while he is making his way back through this area that he had conquered, one of the things that you should know about Alexander is that he starts founding cities. Do you know what he calls every one of those cities? Alexandria, right? This narcissist names like 12 major cities after himself. But what is it that he's actually doing there? Why would Alexander be doing that? What's the point? Why is Alexander doing this at these conquered areas? to remind them who's in charge, right? And as he's doing that, he's putting the stamp of approval. This is Alexandria. This is no longer Persepolis, because that actually happened for a bit, and then no one remembered as soon as he left. 
They changed it back to Persepolis, right? But the point was, he was reminding them, I'm in charge. But as he was doing this, he is spreading Greek culture and the grandeur of Greece, right? Does anybody know who Alexander's tutor was? Who his teacher was? Aristotle. You know, of Aristotelian fame, right? The Greek philosopher. There's a really famous statue of Aristotle, and he's got his nose broke off, but he's got like a sweet beard, right? So Alexander was taught by like literally one of the number, like in history, like the top four Greek philosophers was his personal teacher. And what he was taught by, um, by Aristotle was that there are these people who don't live in Greece and they don't think like we do and we are bringing the good news of logic to them. Sound familiar? And so he begins this process of what we call Hellenization, where he is spreading Greek culture and that he is going to have all his boys marry into these royal families and they're going to start being really insidious by not having uh, cats named Artaxerxes, but you're going to have cats named Lysias from now on in these areas, right? Because dad's going to name the sons and the daughters what he wants to name them and they're going to take over the culture by instilling Greek values in these places that have never known Greek before. Tracking with that? That process is called Hellenization. And so this is what ushers in the Hellenistic age. And then the big deal is what language did they all speak? Koine Greek. Does anybody know what the word Koine means? Common. And the reason we call it common is because there was all sorts of varieties. And don't think of like dialects or accents. Think of like very close to Greek, but different kinds of Greek. But there was one standard Greek that everyone taught, and they, or excuse me, everyone used primarily in the marketplace, like when they were selling and trading stuff, right? And that was called Koine Greek. What is the New Testament written in? Koine Greek. Yeah. This is the reason why the New Testament is written in Greek is because of Alexander the Great. Yeah? So you see how our stories are starting to connect a whole lot more. So everything's going great for Alexander, right? Anybody know how he dies? He ran out of battles. That's actually, there's a theory is that he was so war weary um, and that he was exhausted. And then on the way back, he was itching for a fight and never got it. And he kept getting drunk. Some people think that his liver failed him. But either way, the way that we know he died was he had a fever. <laughs> Dude gets a headache, runs a fever, and dies. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories about um, whether or not somebody poisoned him because he drank a lot. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about whether or not um, one of his uh, generals had uh, killed him in his sleep, um, either through poison or for some, some other means. Uh, but at the end of the day, he dies in 323. He took the throne in 336. He was in Greece for like nine months of him being the king of Greece. And then he spent the next 12 and a half years on campaign, right? What do you think he did not do during this time? What's something that normally kings would make sure they do during this time that he absolutely neglected? He does not have an heir. There is no one to inherit this huge kingdom that he just fought for. What do you think is going to happen next? That is where we get the Diadochoi states. 
So this is the Persian Empire that's now the Alexander the Great's empire for you know a decade and some change. You can see that red outline. Um, that is the extent of Alexander. He made it all the way over here near India, right? There's the Indus River right there. He conquers, so this is India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Iran, and then you have Iraq right here, right? That's modern day areas. He conquers every bit of that. And the moment he dies, immediately, every one of his generals, they make it back to Babylon, they get ready to like bury the dude, and then the place just falls apart, okay? So there are three main areas that we really need to be worried about. Ptolemy, he is gonna take over Egypt. Um, does anybody know anything about Ptolemy, what he did in scientific research? What he actually accomplished? This is not like one of his kids, but like this dude, Ptolemy, he actually estimated the circumference of the earth in 300 BC down to like 4% of what we know it actually is now. You know how he did it? With sticks. I'm dead serious. He measured the angle of the sun at high noon at two different locations in Egypt with sticks, and he estimated the circumference of the earth. These are not idiots. That's my point. These are his generals that won Alexander the war, but none of them could agree on who gets what, and this is what busts out, the Diadokoi states, right? So we got Ptolemy down here in Egypt. We have the Antigonids who are going to be here in Turkey at first, eventually, uh, the Seleucid Empire over here in the gray, they are basically going to take over everything in Turkey and eventually down here. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, but the Antagonids, eventually, they end up taking over the rest of Greece. Don't worry about Cassander and those cats. They basically get smoked in the first round of the Diadokoi Wars, and it's a done deal for them, right? So the three guys, Ptolemy, the Seleucids, and the Antagonids, right? And of those two, we're talking about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, okay? Cool with that? Questions about the map? All right. So let's talk about the Diadokoi or the Diadochi, however you want to pronounce it, whatever. You'll see it different ways. Uh, these Greek states. What that word in Greek means, it just means successors. He didn't have any heirs. He didn't have a son. Alexander couldn't leave the empire to Bocephalus, his white horse, right? So somebody's got to take control. And so who is most poised to do so? The guys in charge of the army. And so they fight each other, and this is what breaks down. We have what I just told you there. The Antigonids are going to take over Macedonia and Greece eventually. The Seleucids or Seleucids are going to take over what is basically the old Babylonian Empire. And then Ptolemy is going to take over Egypt. And that's really static for the most part. Like there's fighting to get to this point, but this is basically where everything stands for quite a while. In fact, there's four major wars that happened during this time. These guys are going to fight each other, Cassander and Licinius, those cats up there, and Greek, they're going to, Greece, they're going to get pushed out by the Antagonids. Cyprus is going to change hands like a dozen times. It's crazy, right? So there's all sorts of stuff that's going on there. I don't really need to worry about that. There is one fight that you need to know about, and that's the Battle of Paneus, also known in the New Testament as Caesarea Philippi. This battle in 198 BC, so 200 BC, 200 years before Jesus is rolling around, this is the turning point for what we would know as Palestine or Judea, that region, because this is when the Seleucids are finally going to kick Ptolemy out of this area. Okay? That's a big deal for us. I know I'm throwing a bunch of names at you. There's really only one name you need to know 
as a result of this here in a bit. Um, and I'll highlight him in just a moment. The Seleucids are going to take over this region, and they are not going to turn loose of it until the Romans get involved. There's going to be a period of the Maccabeans. We'll talk about them next week. Your boy, the Hammer, Judas, and Matthias, them boys, the Maccabeans. Um, that's going to be next week. But basically, the Seleucids are going to be in charge of Jerusalem until 63 B.C. We're getting really close to when Jesus is born, right? Caesar, you know, like of Roman fame, Caesar, he is around 45 to 50 BC. So we're right on the cusp of whenever he's going to be showing up. Okay, so that's next week. The reason why this is important is because we do actually have another connection is that Daniel 11 very well may be giving us some insight here about this infighting that's going to happen in the Holy Land there. That's a disputed text. It's clear as to what it says, but what it means, an entirely different thing. There's pretty decent evidence that it's referring to this kind of ordeal that's going on in Judea. Okay? Tracking with that, Alexander the Great sweeps through the Persian Empire, conquers the whole Joker in about 13 years. Homeboy dies on his way home, has no heir, the whole place falls apart. You have three major players, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and the Antagonids, and really you've got the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, that's it. And eventually we're going to have Rome on the horizon here in a bit. Cool? We will have Rome on the horizon soon, right? Which is what we're going to look at next. All right, any questions so far? I know I'm blazing through this, but this is the type of stuff that sets the stage for whenever Jesus and your boy Johnny B are rolling around. Like, all of this is somewhat recent history, okay? This is important. All right, let me show you one last map. What we need to know is that the Romans have been kicking around since about the 4th century B.C. So before Alexander the Great actually started doing all of his stuff, the Romans were around, except they were just in, you guessed it, Rome. Ah, who would have thought, right? So they were only in Rome, but by this time we're actually looking at about 218, so not too far after, um, this is shortly after... Uh, the Seleucids, or excuse me, shortly before the Seleucids are going to take over Jerusalem, okay? But what I want to highlight here is that you've got Rome who's hanging out here. The red is the Carthaginians, okay? Those are going to be a big deal. Um, then you've got Ptolemy down here in Egypt, this green. You've got the Seleucids here in yellow, and then you've got the Antagonids there in uh, blue. And a little bit later, they're going to end up taking over these other unaffiliated states, which is like Sparta, Athens, Corinth, those types of dudes. All that's going to get taken over. But here's the deal. Within a hundred years of this map, it's all going to be one color. Every bit of this. And who's going to be in charge of all of that area? The Romans, right? So we've gone from just, say, 350 B.C. The Persians were in charge of an area that's much more expansive all the way to India, right? The Romans are eventually going to conquer within 200, 300 years, basically all of that up to Babylon, so everything from Babylon off to the east to like India, they don't even care about that. Like it's, it's not worth their time because they've got far more bigger pressing matters here. They eventually make it up here to Great Britain. Um, I mean, literally Caesar builds one of Rome's first fleets. It gets destroyed on the shores. So you know what he does? Builds a second one, <laughs> right? I mean, this dude don't play, right? So the Romans are eventually going to take charge, not of just the Italian peninsula, and they're going to start working their way through the Illyrians, the Thracians, the Macedonians, and then they're going to start working their way the exact same path that Alexander took. Okay? That's what's coming down the pipe. Cool? 
All right, so let's talk about the Romans. So I'd already said the Romans have been kicking around since about the fourth century, but they were going to have them a, a fight on their hands um, with the Punic Wars, right? What are the Punic Wars? Who is Rome fighting in the Punic Wars? There's at least three different clear iterations of this. The Carthaginians. I know it doesn't make any sense to call the Carthaginians fighting the Romans in the Punic Wars, but if you're thinking of, uh, not Attila the Hun, Hannibal, Hannibal, whenever he's fighting the Romans, does anybody remember what Hannibal fights the Romans with famously? He uses elephants. Hannibal gets a whole bunch of elephants from down here in the sub-Saharan Africa. He brings them up to Carthage, and then he marches them jokers all the way over, goes across the Alps, crosses the Alps, the mountains with elephants, right? This is no joke. This is the type of fights that the Romans are engaged in. They're in a like life and death struggle themselves. But guess what? When they win and they beat the Carthaginians, especially basically this whole area, this whole like horn around Carthage, they salt the earth and nothing grows there for like a hundred years. Like I'm dead serious. Like they're talking about thousands of pounds of salt. They till the dirt up, pour salt in, cover it up, pour more salt on there. These dudes are not playing around, right? So let me just recap. The Assyrians, bad dudes. They were whipped up by the Babylonians. They were worse. Then the Persians come and whip up on them. They were worse. Then you get the Greeks coming through and Alexander the Great slaughters 95% of Tyre. And then you got the Romans doing this to Carthage, right? The meat grinder is rolling on in this area. And if we're not going to be able to see how God's working through it, man, it's going to be a really pessimistic view of history, right? Tracking with that? All right, so you've got Rome. They've been kicking around for the last four centuries. They're going to fight the Punic Wars. Those are going to go from about the mid-third century, so like 260, all the way to like the next hundred years. They're going to fight three major battles or three major wars um, with, uh, with the Carthaginians, right, with Carthage. And so whenever he finally, or whenever Rome finally secures their foothold in the Italian peninsula and they take over Carthage, there's nothing standing in their way from two major areas, Greece and Egypt. So that's exactly the next place they want to go. So there's this cat named Antiochus III. He's actually a Seleucid um, emperor. So he's part of the Seleucid Empire. And he says, you know what? I want to go to Greece. And when he gets there, the Romans are already in charge, and they say, no. Not only are you not going to take over this land, in fact, you're going to give us part of Asia. So basically all those Greek city-states that were independent under Alexander and then Philip, and they eventually get taken over, all of that area eventually goes directly to the Romans, and they just, they just start pressing further east. Okay, So the Romans say no. Antiochus III has a son named Antiochus Epiphanes. He is actually part of the treaty that secures peace between the Seleucid Empire and the Romans. And what Antiochus III has to do is send one of his sons to Rome. That dude is Antiochus Epiphanes. That's Antiochus IV. Uh, That's going to be really important in the next slide, so just hold on to that name, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and so all of their land is going to start shrinking because Rome's rolling through, and then eventually we come back to our biblical storyline, the Jews are eventually going to rebel. Okay? That's, that is where we are heading next week. Okay? 
But before we get to that point, I want to tell us how we got there. So I want to wrap up everything tonight and then we can kind of turn back to a map and I can answer whatever questions you have. All right, so here's the final thoughts. Number one, Alexander the Great is the reason we have the New Testament in Greek, right? We've been asking this question, the, the premise that I had whenever we approached this semester was how did we have the Old Testament written in Hebrew and the New Testament is written in Greek and the Romans are in charge? We've answered that first part from the last 13 weeks. It's written in Hebrew because they're Hebrew. And then the New Testament's written in Greek because of Alexander the Great. Next week, we'll talk about how the Romans got in charge, okay? So this is incredibly important for us because a common language is incredibly useful. You tell me, how could a common language, whenever Jesus is rolling around in his day and the disciples immediately after him, how is that beneficial for them? You tell me. John. Obedience to the Great Commission. In what sense? They can actually go to the ends of the earth and share, right? How many languages do you think Paul would have had to have had in his head in order to write the letters that he did in such a large region? Like, we're talking at least like five languages, probably. He most likely knew very well, too, and possibly Latin had part of it. But, like, he would have had to have had multiple other languages had Alexander the Great not rolled through and consolidated all of those languages into Koine Greek, right? So whenever we say that this is God working through history, this is a big deal. When we talk about the Romans next week, what's the thing that the Romans are famous for in their empire with what they do with infrastructure? What do they make? They build roads. There are literally Roman roads that exist still today in Turkey. They are still there and they are used. How do you think Paul got around everywhere? When Paul and Barnabas are out there kicking around in the dirt, how did they get around? The Roman infrastructure, right? What language did they speak? What in Latin? It was Greek. So you see how God's working all that together? This is where the intersectionality of history and scripture are just immediately running into each other. Yeah? So I just want to highlight that. So I want to return back to a big concept. When Alexander the Great's rolling around and the Hellenization era is ongoing, let me just say this. The Jews did not take well to that at all. How might Jewish people not like Greek culture? What are some things that you think they would object to? Just guess. You're probably going to be right. I'll just say it that way. John. Multiple gods. Right? That kind of flies in the face of, I don't know, like several of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you know, like one, one in particular. Yeah? What else might they run into trouble with with Hellenization, with Greek culture? The lifestyle. The lifestyle. What do you mean? The wine. the wine. There's one other big one. Especially the Romans start building these all over the place. Okay, so dietary things, that's going to come to play here in just a bit. But one of the things that Romans are very famous for, again, in Turkey, there's several of these, are bathhouses. Dudes just bathing together like Jews never would have done that. And that's like part of daily life for Greeks and then later Romans, right? 
Like, so you can see that there's going to be tension, not just because of like a religious thing, but even practically, these guys look differently. They act completely differently. They eat unclean things all the time. And this is where we got to come back to our boy Antiochus Epiphanes. Eventually he gets released from Rome and he gets put in charge of Jerusalem. And he decides, I'm going to force the issue. These cats here, these Jews, these random people who are nobodies in this random backwater town, which by the way, that is exactly what Jerusalem was considered, was a backwater town. No one wanted to be there. He started to force the issue and said, no, y'all are going to become Greek. Does anybody know what he is famous for doing? Antiochus Epiphanes? He sets up an idol of Jupiter... Zeus, same guy, sets up an idol in the temple and sacrifices pigs on the altar. What do you think the Jews are going to do as a result? They're going to rebel. So what happens is there's these cats named the Maccabeans. They're on the horizon. We're going to talk about them next week. Judas, Matthias, and them boys, the hammer, right? So they're on the horizon, but here's the problem. Rome is looming just beyond the horizon, and things are going to get even worse when the Romans show up. Because when Rome comes through, you thought Hellenization was bad? We're not trying to push Hellenization. It looks very similar, but they are all about Rome. Rome is going to be the standard for everything they do. In fact, let's fast forward a little bit beyond the writing of the, the, uh, the Gospels. So the Gospels are written probably around 50 to 60 A.D. What happens in 70 A.D. in Jerusalem? What do the Romans do? They burn it, and what else do they do? They destroy the temple again. That second temple that they've had for 500 years, gone. When did they rebuild that temple? They haven't. They haven't. So whenever we take a step back and we look at history, that's why this is important. So the Maccabeans are on the horizon. As soon as we get to Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, they're going to be on the horizon. We're immediately going to meet them boys next week. Excellent stuff. This cat named Judas Maccabeus and Matthias. It's great stuff. Um, but the problem with that is Israel gains their independence for a little bit, but then they lose it again because the Romans come through and they're not going to stand for it. Yeah? All right. Questions, comments, concerns. I know we blazed through quite a bit. I threw a bunch of names and a bunch of maps at you, but this is that period of the period of 400 years of silence in the Old Testament between the Old Testament and the New. That's what's going on during this time. All right? Questions? <coughs> Mm -hmm. yet. yet. Haven't rebuilt the temple yet, and even if that is necessary is a matter of eschatological dispute, but there is a, a full anticipation that there should be a temple rebuilt. In fact, like, does anybody know what actually stands on the Temple Mount right now? Say again? Yeah, it's a, it's a mosque. <laughs> you know, I don't think they're going to build a temple on top of a mosque without knocking the mosque down. And I don't think that's going to go over well, right? So you can see where Islam doesn't show up into this part of the world until about 600, 700 AD. So we still got nearly a century, or excuse me, nearly a millennia until 
Muhammad gets his revelation, right? So we're still several centuries away from that. But, like, this is, this is encroaching on modern day problems right now, is it not? Starting to see that. All right, what questions or comments, questions, concerns, whatever you got, gripes, complaints? What you got? How much of this was brand new information? You're like, I didn't even know who Alexander was. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of Alexander the Great, but like, I, I try to like reduce all the stuff that I know is cool about Alexander to like the most useful stuff. If you take nothing away from this, one, don't think of Alexander the Great. You remember that movie, uh, Alexander by C Colin Farrell and um, Angelina Jolie? We're in that movie, this is about 15 years ago. That's, that ain't it, that, that's a bad representation of Alexander. Um, as you saw on the, the, the picture of the mosaic, he was not like, he ain't Colin Farrell, let me just say it that way. The boy had a big old schnoz, like he wasn't winning any beauty contests. But apparently this dude was like massive. Um, Bocephalus, his horse, was like a huge horse. Um, when, like, if you know anything about horses, we're talking like 17, 18 hands high. Like, this is a huge horse. And then Alexander was abnormally tall for a Greek, and he was probably like 6'4", which in that day was massive. And uh, the story of Simon the Just in Jerusalem meeting Alexander at the gate is that he's standing there and like <laughs> looking up at Alexander because he's a huge man on a huge horse. And like that persona is just part of like who he was as an individual in history, right? Um, you, could, you could legitimately say that the turning point of Western history is the Battle of Galgamela, whenever he defeats the Persians. Because that's what kickstarts Koine Greek, that's what kickstarts the Romans, that's what kickstarts Western history as we really know it at that point. Yeah? That's how big a deal it is. John? Um, yeah. Yeah, so the question was how much of the population of the world was speaking Greek? Let me look into that. I've read numbers that have said what Koine Greek uh, fluency looked like at that time, um, especially like during the New Testament period, whenever we get to like the turn of, you know, zero to one AD, you know, when you get to that point. Um, but I, if I say it now, I'm going to be wrong. Um, by the way, this is tangentially related. Do y'all know what the word literate means? Someone who is literate, what does that mean? You can read, not quite. Technically, it's that you can read and write. But if you really want to be pompous about it, you know what literate really means? That you can read and write both Greek and Latin. Y'all are a bunch of illiterates. <laughs> you know who's not? This guy. I mean, I don't use it, right? Every language I know is a dead language. You got Koine Greek, you got Hebrew, and you got Latin doing me wonders at this point, you know? So, yeah, that's technically what the term literate means. So whenever you start seeing these Romans, um, what the Romans would do for fun is they would sit in the caldarium, which is like the hot tub in their baths, and they would translate Greek. That's what they did for fun. Like, everyone thinks of the Romans as like these really buff, like, warriors. They were a bunch of nerds. Like, really, they really were. They loved translating in poetry and stuff like that. Crazy, right? Bunch of nerds. I mean, they conquered the known world, essentially, you know, but a bunch of nerds. All right, any other questions about Rome, Greece, Alexander, Darius, all them boys? What you got?
All right, so let me just pause right here and say, we have covered every bit of that. Everything from prehistory and before creation and what creation, what the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 is teaching us about how history operates and how Israel understood its own history. We've covered every bit of that to now we're knocking on the door of Jesus being born. That's going to be next week. College students, sorry, catch us online. You can do that, right? Everybody that's going to be recorded, we got notes and stuff. Y'all going to be gone. But what we're going to talk about next week is we're going to talk about the Jewish rebellions and we're going to talk about your boy, Johnny B. I'm just going to say right now, do you see how there might be tension in Jerusalem at this point? They had already suffered under the Babylonians, got kicked out of town. They were gone for about a century. They come back. They're there for about a century. And then these new fangled dudes come rolling through the Greeks. And they're there for about 200 years. And now the Romans are around. Like You can see how there's like generational trauma being built up over and over and over again, right? So then whenever John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he is proclaiming, prepare the way for the Lord, that's a very timely message that they have been recounting for four centuries, waiting to hear from a messenger from God. And just so you know, the first voice that you hear in the New Testament is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, it's your boy Johnny B, right? That's where we're getting next week. Cool? All right. And then lastly, a reminder, next spring we're going to be in 1 John. We're going to hit line by line. We're going to cover every stinking word of 1 John. You're going to love it. Yeah? Which Say again? Which the right one, Greek. <laughs> Not joking. Yeah? So... That is January 24th is the first night. So next week is the last week of the fall semester. That's the December 13th. We'll do a meal. Mission Journey Kids will be the last night. Um, and then January 24th will be the first spring uh, equipping institute. Word? All right. Y'all are asleep because I talked about history for an hour. Let me pray for us and we'll bounce. Father, I thank you for the chance to be able to talk about um, how you are active in history. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be reminded of our brother Isaiah's words whenever he says that you are the one that declares the end from the beginning and that there is nothing that you say that won't come to pass. And so, Father, I know that you work through history um, because we've seen that even tonight, but also just uh, in my own experience, I know that you work through human circumstance and people. And so, Father, I pray that as we have worked through this tonight, I pray that we will be convinced of how you are still active today in the world, in history, as it's being made day by day. And uh, we know that eventually history is going to culminate not with some grand peace that we bring about by our own might, but because there is a good king who comes and rules over us, and we anticipate his coming. And so, Father, we pray, along with our brother John in Revelation, come, Lord, quickly. We pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, if you got other questions, come talk with me.